Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right, all right. All right, so everybody, welcome, welcome, welcome to Real Talk with Anthony B. Um, this is our Black History Talk, mental health in our community. Um, I know y'all used to me doing a whole lot of um, topics during Black History Month, but Black History Month has been busy because we're still fighting for our rights and equity and justice. <laughs> so, you know, um, you know I, at least before Black History ends, one thing I want to talk about is the mental health. You know, um, there's many of us who in our communities who do suffer from it, and a lot of that, I consider that to be intergenerational. But also, I consider that to be also from our ancestors down uh, from the trauma that we know that they face and that we still face today. Um, I myself, you know, I can say that I have mental health issues. Um, there's many other advocates out there who do as well, too. You know, depression, anxiety, PTSD, and so forth like that. I work it out in the best way I can, cope with it, you know, seek um, uh, therapy and so forth. And, you know, a lot of that has helped along the way. I've also, you know, found ways that works with me you know, on how I can deal so that way I'm not feeling like I'm being thrown around. So, but enough, enough about me, you know, let's get to our special guest today. So we have Dr. LaShawn Paul. As I told him I'm throwing all the, all the syllables and synonyms and everything else out there. You know, DSW, uh, <laughs> LCSW, dash, Archie will tell you what all of that means. <laughs> but definitely, um, you know, as, you know, as, you know, LaShawn, Dr. LaShawn Paul, you know, has done her work, you know, when it's come to, you know, um, not only social, um, social work, but also, you know, when it comes to um, psychology as well, too, like people don't understand that it, it takes a lot, you know, you know, and, and also a lot of stuff intertwines with each other. But let me tell you about Dr. LaShawn Paul real quick. Um, she's a therapist and mental health advocate. She's the owner of Social Work Diva. Um, a provider of mental health services, including psychotherapy, clinical supervision, and mental health consultation. She earned her uh, master's in social work from Columbia University, all you Columbia University people out there, and her doctorate in social work from the University of South, South, um, Southern California, to all you Cali people out there. Um, her commitment to Black mental health equity has garnered her several awards and led to her recognition by HuffPost, good stuff, as one of the 10 Black female therapists to know. Good stuff. Glad I know her. <laughs> I know who the other nine are. <laughs> At least I know one. You know, but definitely you can visit her on socialworkdiva.com to learn more about Dr. Paul and her life's work. But, you know, that's just, you know, me with, you know, when it comes to the, um, to her bio, but I'd like Dr. Paul to tell you more about her and her work in, um, when it comes to social work and also um, psychology. So my work is predominantly in social work um, on, and mental health. So I don't often say psychology, even though social work is a combination of that, right? It's, we operate from a biopsychosocial standpoint anyway, and even, I would even add political um, standpoint. 
And I think that one of the biggest things for me has always been Black women's mental health, right? So my life work centers around Black women's mental health, um, not only in my doctorate, um, but also in my private practice. So I see Black women in New York, and all of my providers that I supervise are Black women who see Black women. Um, and ultimately, we try to close and fill those type of gaps. And I utilize the advocacy that I do with NAMI and various other organizations that I'm a part of um, and the Multicultural Committee to make sure that we get funding and voices heard um, to kind of deal with the mental health crisis that our community is facing, but generalize even bigger than that, what the entire kind of world is dealing with at this point. Uh, definitely, yeah. Uh, oh, man. The world's dealing with a lot. We've yeah, got a lot, and you can um, call me LaShawn, by the way. <laughs> We're a little bit more formal than that. The formalities was done after the bio. Yeah, the formalities was done after the bio. You know, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but definitely, yeah, the world is dealing with a lot. Um, you know, not only with what existed, you know, pre-pandemic, but what, what has come about in the pandemic, what the pandemic has amplified within our communities. You know, but also even now, like you have what's going, you know, look at what's going on right now in politics and war with Russia and Ukraine. And there's a lot of, matter of fact, New York has the highest concentration of Ukrainian um, residents, you know, so you can imagine what they're going through right now. You know, but also, you know, when we're looking at our communities as black people, you know, we have to, we have to be very real with ourselves. You know, uh, I remember growing up, you know, especially in, a, in, a, in an Afro-Carib household, you know, mental health was not talked about. You know, Definitely not. <laughs> mental health was not something that, you know, you were told, go to church, go to school, come home. <laughs> That's and it. that people who had mental illness were crazy and you should avoid or stay away from them, even yeah. though members of your own family ignored their own mental illnesses. Yeah, you know, and, and, we, and we know that we, we had an aunt or uncle that we were told to stay away from, that cousin we were told not to play with. It's over yeah. like that, you know. The the cousin or uncle that came around went to the blue moon from an invite, you know. But um, you know, there's a lot that goes on in our community, um, you know, especially you know with you know social injustices that we've been facing, um, inequities that we deal with every day, um, and put it like this, you know, youth are not even safe from you know the mental health issues that occur as well. You know, you see it every day, you know, out here. You know, many you know, matter of fact, look at the suicide rate now. When it comes to young, you know, young black children, you know, from being bullied, from you know, just trauma in general, from you know, not not having somebody that can actually guide them through a lot, you know, that's going on because you know, even in our schools, a lot of us are advocating to have more social workers in our schools, you know, because we we sure have a lot of cops, but we don't have social workers. You know, how, I often how think we... too that it's a little mm -hmm. bit minimalized, also, right, by parents yeah. and caretakers who feel your children as young as five years old are, especially black boys, are dying by suicide at alarming rates. Yeah. And oftentimes they're kind of told, "What do you have to worry about?" Right, like just go to school. As if school doesn't pose additional stressors, especially in a pandemic. So, as you mentioned, yeah. like the exacerbation of it as a result of the pandemic, um, there was already like task force and those sort of stuff created for black youth mental health, mental health and suicide um, prior to the pandemic, right in 2019, led by Bonnie Wassman Coleman, um, that 
Michael Lindsay and a whole bunch of researchers and advocates, including like Taraji P. Henson, went before Congress and said, hey, we need you to draw attention to this because this is an issue. And yes. then the pandemic happened right on its outskirts once the it actually published this report at the beginning of the pandemic or right on the onset. And mm. it ultimately became something that was less talked about because money had to be allocated elsewhere. And mental health, is, as you mentioned, is extremely important, especially for those who are in our community, mainly because even though we see an increase, like propensities for mental illness sometime in our lifetime compared to our white counterparts, the thing yeah. is really truly that we don't get the treatment that we need, right? Or we don't seek the treatment um, for various different reasons. And I know that you're probably going to go through that, make me go through them <laughs> later on. So I'll hold off of that. But I think that that's one of the reasons that it's important that we have these type of conversations. And I thank you for having it in your busy <laughs> community <laughs> advocate and all these other different titles that you have behind your own name. No, definitely. You know, and, and one of the things is like, and something that like a few people know about me is the fact that you know I actually went to school for psychology. Um, you know I had to take a hiatus, and it was due to mental health as well. Why, like literally, I felt overwhelmed. I felt like I couldn't focus and concentrate. And instead of you know going on a downward spiral, I said, no, let me take a hiatus. Let me, let me focus on other things. Those things worked out, and then let me go back. You know, um, because I was you know I was, I was already spending my 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 supposed paycheck in my head already of what I would make as a psychologist. You know, but that wasn't my inspiration. My inspiration was the fact of seeing so many people because, you know, being a Marine Corps veteran, I see so many of my fellow veterans going through it. Most of them are not here today as I am lucky to be here breathing. You know, um, a lot of them, you know, have failed attempts at suicides and they're fully disabled. A lot of them are disabled veterans like myself and that's sent them into a downward spiral. You know, I know it. I can relate to it. And one of the things I can say is that it led me to want to make a difference. And to be honest, that actually became one of my coping uh, mechanisms to want to do better for others, you know, because I knew that, you know, with doing that, you know, I saw where I was going. I saw what helped me, you know, so I was like, okay, maybe I can help them as well too. And, you know, like I say, you, you can't save everybody. You know, you're not Superman or whatever like that, but those who you can save means a lot. and. You know, this is something that a lot of people didn't, didn't know. You know, like, in the, in the military, we go through a lot, especially being Black in the military. You know, people don't understand the fight that you go through dealing with the racism, the bias, you know, the, you know, you getting hazed more than the rest, you know, the the trauma, you know, and, and it continues. And then that, on top of dealing with what you're dealing with in this country as a Black person in the whole, like, let's be real. <laughs> Let's it's be hard real. to love a country that doesn't typically love you back, right? And I think that, I, I think one of the things that you kind of left off is as someone who's now a retired vet, it, it also, I'm sure things are coming up for you in regards to Ukraine and the possibility of war and those sort of stuff too. Um, so in addition to the pandemic, we all have this <laughs> eminent threat, right? Where people joked about on Twitter, like, one thing America's going to do is get back to work and get to, back to business as usual, while the rest of the world kind of bites their fingers and there's concern. We ultimately mm -hmm. try to utilize other different techniques, such as coping with humor, even though the rest of the world isn't finding our humor on Twitter today funny, right? <laughs> um, exactly. They're like, this is a real threat. People are dying and you're making jokes. But I also think that a lot of people are really 
tackling and dealing with a lot. And humor is probably the only arsenal that they have against all of this compounding stress that we're dealing with at a unprecedented time. I know we say that often, but literally, truly this time probably is like no other. The pandemic and all these other issues from climate change to everything else that kind of exists and creates this kind of um, fear of what the future holds. Exactly, exactly. You know, and I just want to, um, you know, it's glad, glad you mentioned human because I remember somebody pointing out to me that there's times where I, I would smile or laugh, but I was anxious, you know, but that was me trying to, I, I guess, take control of the situation and try to take control of my anxiety. But that was the only way I knew how. I had a friend in high school who would make the most awkward jokes. We didn't know why. Until later on, we found out that was to deal with the depression, you know, that he was dealing with. And he was in a deep down spiral. And many of us did not know that because, you know, we, we weren't taught to look for the signs. We weren't, you know, we weren't taught about mental health in general. You know, we didn't have it in our schools, you know. Like when we, but most of the, but most we learned about health was like sex education. And then they even took that out the schools. So they definitely weren't putting mental health inside of For me, I had a much earlier introduction <laughs> to mental health <laughs> services. Um, I actually had a psychiatrist from my time I was in elementary school at one point and mm. not necessarily for mental illness. I remember, I, I tell the story often that my regular primary care physician um, I had a thyroid issue. The medication wasn't working. And I, he asked me, like, how long I wanted to live. And because I waited, like, four hours for care, I was like, I don't care at, like, 12 years old. And he thought, oh, my gosh, she's suicidal. Oh, and he was oh, like, do man. you want to talk to someone? I was like, if that means that I get to leave, yes. Right? And ultimately, he sent me to this person. And it was my first interaction or connection to a system, right? Oftentimes in our community, People are connected to a system typically through a child protective services or something like that, where they meet a social worker or someone who's within that field. My first time was just kind of talking. And I, from there, even though there were a whole bunch of cultural issues, right? White yeah. male, Jewish man, and this young mm -hmm. Black girl, um, and even my outspokenness and those sort of things. I, I remember at one point we had conversations about politics way too much. Um, and he thought I was like, oh, you're like so smart. And I was like, I don't think this is what therapy is really supposed to be, but okay, <laughs> he's engaging me. Um, yeah. And I remember even going back to school, right? And telling people, hey, I have a psychiatrist. Cause in my head, and and this is, this I actually now I realize it's a issue of accessibility. I yeah. always kind of thought, oh, well, if you have a psychiatrist, you're rich, right? So I'm like, oh, I want this is what I saw on TV. So I went and yeah. told everyone, oh, I have a psychiatrist. And they're like, oh, she's cute, but she's crazy, right? <laughs> and I think that like something that I thought was like an amazing tool wasn't necessarily yeah. received like that from my peers. And that kind of goes back into like the stigma that's associated, right? Where people don't yeah. necessarily get help unless there's a serious mental illness. Um, or a real issue that requires immediate care rather than the preventative care. And that's what I really hope for our people is that we do get preventative care to prevent the onset of mental illness, and, but also learn to effectively cope with it if those things necessarily arise. No, definitely, definitely. And that's what makes me want to jump into our first questions, you know. Um, matter of fact, well, you told about, you told you just told us about your first interaction a psychologist so i don't know if that kind of goes into this first question but we're going to dive deeper into that okay but what made you choose to get into the field of 
social work and mental health? So for me, it doesn't necessarily dive in um, because my first experience, <laughs> like I told you, I didn't really, I didn't really grasp the reason for it and the reason yeah. for it. And I did a very short term and I was like, okay, this isn't for me once I wasn't received with cultural competence and care. Um, but one of the things that, that I, how I got into mental, well, to social work, um, during my senior, I always wanted to be a lawyer. And during my senior year of high school, I had a friend that died, a very close friend that died um, from suicide. Mm. And when she died, it, um, almost immediately, I knew that I wanted to potentially pursue social work because a lot of the chatter that was happening right up until the onset of her passing was really kind of surrounding the stigma, right? I did, We didn't know that she had attempted suicide three times for that summer. Um, and when I, I saw her a couple of days before she passed and now as a clinician and someone with more knowledge, I'm able to say, oh, wow, that was signs of depression, right? Her eyes were low. There was the lack of energy. So very lethargic in her speech and a lot of stuff. And I remember just going to get snacks, um, at key food and bumping into her and ultimately saying, asking her if she was okay. And she's like, Yeah right? The masking of it, right? Of mental illness is often what most people do in order to not necessarily be kind of outed, right? And when she said that she was fine, I asked again, because I realized she wasn't, but I just chucked it up like, okay, well, if you don't want to share, I'll kind of leave it alone. And I went along my way and to find out she died a couple days later was heartbreaking for me. Um, and still is to this day. It's one of the reasons I really ever really kind of talk about it. But also um, recognize that this story is important. It's one of the reasons when people ask this question, I share it. Um, and I also, I, the reason why she ultimately didn't share that she was um, having suicidal ideations and had these attempts was because her mother, um, Afro-Caribbean also, told her that pretty much prayed away, right? Go to Jesus, make Jesus remove this from you. Um, and she was also told that she people would think she's crazy and not to tell or share, right? And one of the things that we know about suicide and one of the big protective factors is talking about it, right? You're more likely not to do it if you have conversations about it, right? And it, you allow the irrational thoughts to necessarily leave your head and, and have those type of conversations with loved ones. So recognizing and knowing that for me, I didn't want anyone, I thought I was going to be a school social worker, I was so adamant that's what I was going to do and even had my specialization at Columbia in, in clinical, well, concentration in clinical work, but my specialization was school-based schooling services, um, where I recognized there was a need, one, for social workers in school and in every school and have been kind of advocating for that for over 10 years um, plus, probably like 14, 15 at this point. Um, and I've also recognized that there was a need for people to not feel isolated and alone. As I progressed and ultimately couldn't work in the school because New York City had changed the way that school social workers were hired that same year, um, I ended up getting into the medical field and into medical social work and those sort of stuff, but always recognized that there was a need, especially working at Brookdale Hospital, that even when there was chronic Ill physical ailments and illnesses, there were issues that were uh, like an impact in regards to trauma, right? Um, gun violence that plagues Brownsville, um, in addition to poverty and a lot of other traumatic things that ultimately have an effect on our mental health. Um, and I think that that was the reason that I felt that it was important to not only 
kind of pursue this field, but also make sure that I advocate for individuals who look like me, um, who are in desperate need of services. You're muted. Yeah. <laughs> Zooms all day, but uh, <laughs> no, no, you definitely hit on some good points there, you know, and um, you know, it is tragic to see, you know, and hear about somebody at a young age, you know, passing away due to suicide, you know, um, I remember, even at fact, even in the Marine Corps, they asked us during our, during our intake, do you, have you ever thought about killing yourself, you know, and I was like, what, but yeah, you can tell, like, you tell who was like, who's like, what, what are you talking about, and those who was like, what sometimes you know type of thing you know and then even after like you know when you're processing out you know it was the same thing they ask these questions and i was like why keep asking questions and it's like they're trying to gauge where you are coming in to where you are going out even though there's a lack of services <laughs> you know um or even that attempt to give you service or access to the service you know it's, it's still was something that made me think you know especially you know when it comes to our youth like so, much, so many of our youth don't don't have that opportunity. You know, they're not their mental health is not prioritized. Excuse, excuse me, especially those you know, dealing with the pandemic. You know, and um, had experienced the loss of family members. You know, who um those who you know because they were still in schools and weren't in remote, they blamed themselves for family members getting sick. You know, like I remember even even my daughter. I remember at one point in time she was worried. You know, I go to school and it wasn't even for her own sake. She was worried about me and her grandmother sick, you know? And it's like, you know, when you look at these things, these are things that we have to take on before it escalates, you know, because I've seen how it could be, how it develops from childhood on, you know, I've seen it, you know, in, in family members and friends and stuff like that. You know, I've even seen it myself where, you know, you know, I learned that some of the insecurities I had developed into other things it developed into my anxiety you know it, it, it developed into me you know um and as much as people may say that i'm an outgoing person there's times that i just want to be to myself and just focus and just think you know and, and there's a saying there was a saying it was a meme you know on on facebook where it's like um if you see a man in silence Either he's trying to clear his mind or he has a lot on his mind that he's trying to profit. You know. And, I definitely and, and think it, there's a difference too, right? Besides just kind of sitting there and recharging versus kind of isolating yourself, right? And I think that oftentimes, especially black men tend to isolate themselves or not discuss mental health at all, right? Um, because the way that they're socialized, right? Um, to be strong, right? And yeah, to have be, that bravado. Right, exactly. <laughs> and I, I think that that's one of it too, but also for our, for Black youth. And I, people always, and I get a little annoyed because I'm the girl and Black woman's person, right? <laughs> people always center Black boys when you talk about like the punishment of mental health in schools, right? But Black girls are also punished in the same capacity, right? More likely to get suspended and all of those other type of things that are happening in regards to push out and kind of the school to prison pipeline, right? Um, yes. Ultimately, we're acting out, which is kind of code word for Operation Defiant or those sort of things are typically given to our boys and our girls rather mm. than PTSD, 
a lot of these people live in communities that are not necessarily the safest place to live, yeah. are experiencing a whole bunch of challenges that we wish that children would never have to necessarily deal with, from homelessness yeah. to food insecurity, and no one necessarily addresses those big things, right? Um, that ultimately, and even finances have a significant role on our mental health, right? If you can't have your basic needs met, it literally plays in like, what am I going to do next? It, it induces anxiety and it causes chronic stress that ultimately can trigger and lead to mental illness. So I think that it's important for us to just kind of make sure that people's basic needs are met and advocate for those sort of stuff so that we can also make sure that our youth and even the adults are totally in, in a totality of a community is taken care of. Definitely. And you kind of touched into some of the things that's in this next question. And that's why I know there's always like more. Um, what are some modern day factors that you believe contribute to the current mental health issues in our communities? I think, as I just mentioned, food insecurity, right? Um, secure housing, um, other socioeconomical, socioeconomic issues, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the biggest pieces and is the secondary trauma that all Black people experience, even children, um, especially mm. over, the, for, over the past couple of summers in regards to police brutality and what we've seen, the assassination of Black folks because of racism and white supremacy, right, yeah. um, by police. I think those things play a significant role in regards to our mental health um, and exacerbates our anxiety. Um, as you mentioned, even the racism that exists for a lot of people, especially adults in the workplace, racism that exists or implicit bias, if we're going to say it those ways, right, <laughs> um, that exists even in schools, right? So mm -hmm. I think it's a combination of regular daily life stressors, but then adding a pandemic on it, right, where people aren't as connected as they used to be, maybe through te technology and through Zoom, but a lot of people haven't even went back to work, right? Um, in the same capacity, or as I mentioned before, they lost jobs. So unemployment also plays a, a role in those things, right? I think it's important for us to recognize that all of those social determinants, right? Literally impact our mental health in various different ways and at, at intersections. So even being a black person, if we add women, a wo being a woman to that, it exacerbates our mental health. And if you add different levels of oppression through like being uh, LGBTQ, TIA plus community, that increases mm -hmm. our propensity to mental health because of all of the isms that ultimately affect people in the way that they live, right? Um, and I, those things play a significant role contemporary wise, right? But yeah. if we look at his, I always say, even though you're asking about today, I always link it back to the historical trauma also, leading all the way back from slavery, um, yep. Even though I'm Afro-Caribbean, I still see the effects, right? The same civil rights fights that people were fighting even before <laughs> my family landed here, right? Um, that ultimately kind of affects our mental health in ways that often aren't talked about, right? We yeah. kind of accept those things as a way of life, and this is the way it is, and it's not necessarily going to change. But at the same time, as an advocate, <laughs> as you know, that people are constantly fighting and constantly undergoing stress and those things lead to mental health because the fight for equality and is ne or an equity really is really never an easy fight and it also yeah. plays so many different physical and mental health 
issues um, on our bodies. Yeah, because like, I don't know, for some reason, people think advocating is easy. They think the jobs that we do, like myself, you know, being the president of Black Lives Matter, you know, being, you know, um, uh, president of the Book of Chapter of Kabash Patrol Unit, you know, just being out here in the movement. I remember there's times with some of the groups I used to be a part of, we literally used to just have days where we just go to the beach and it felt so weird, but it felt so good, you know, to not be fighting for that day. Because even while we're fighting, people are like, oh, why are, where are y'all at? And we're like, hey, we're only a few people, you know, trying to make big things happen. You know, even with dealing with gun violence in the communities, you know, you have people, especially in our own communities, who literally will down you, say, where is BLM there? You know, where are y'all at? And we're like, we're here, we live in this community, we're fighting it, you know, so like that, you know, but, you know, it, 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 it takes a toll, you know, even in politics, like, I, like I, I just finished the campaign in 2021 and I literally had to take a hiatus because I felt it affecting me. I felt it during the campaign, but I felt it after. When everything was said and done, when I stopped moving, it came crashing down. And I said, whoa, I need to get out of this space. You know, I think to and, a certain extent too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I cut you off. I apologize. I tend to no, do that. Right. <laughs> but right. I think a big part it, of it, <laughs> <laughs> I think a big part of it, right, is it kind of goes back into being a caretaker, right? So advocates are caretakers for their community. And oftentimes caretakers are usually focused on other people so often that they forget to take care of themselves, right? To utilize self-care, you're advocating for community care, right? Oftentimes you forget that you are also important and worthy of that care. You're not necessarily taking breaks to recoup and restress. So when you're like, I went to the beach, connecting with nature is a very great way to cope with mental uh, to risk, in regards to maintaining your mental health yeah, and, like and also coping for with mental illness right <laughs> because oftentimes we're constantly on go and we feel that we have to earn rest as black people for some reason um and it's not for some reason historically it's been that way right um yeah. regardless of wherever the plantation was black people weren't awarded stress and i always say the best way to honor your ancestors especially since it's black history month is to take the rest that you deserve and you don't have to earn it right yeah. and those things are important, right? The type of food we eat, uh, if we're getting sleep and ultimately maintaining basic things that are just supposed to be the way of life. But unfortunately in our society, it isn't necessarily welcomed, right? And it's not accessible for a lot of people. Um, And I think that we make it an individual problem, but literally being in New York City, we know that we're literally living in a food desert, right? So it has, it's, systemically a problem. And I think that that's the biggest piece that we should recognize that in order to really target mental health, we have to target people's ability to exercise and get away from the desk, right? Um, People's ability to just spend time with their kids, or if you don't have children to walk their dog or whatever it is that you do for (laughs) fun, right? And I think that that's important too, to create a lifestyle that is welcoming to mental wellness rather than illness and that's ultimately the way that we're headed because none of it has ever really changed mm. now that, that now that's very true because like i said you know i felt like a kid when i went to when i when i went to the beach that day like it was the first time i seen us like we will we will you know we will chuckle and laugh before we get to an action and like we always had this cut off switch as soon as we exit from the train station to where the action is going to be it's like full-on mode 
you know, being a cop watcher out there every single day, not only patrolling to make sure that we don't have instances of brutality, but then even witnessing the brutality, being victims of brutality. Like I tell people, I'm a two time survivor of police brutality, where the last time I thought I wasn't going to survive at all, you know, and that trauma is very real. Cause I remember after that, I only slept for an hour a day. I kept on waking up thinking somebody was grabbing me, thinking somebody was throwing me out, thinking somebody was beating on me, you know, and it's very real, you know, but even just being out there, like, I remember just feeling it and seeing some of our people who we got so burnt out that they just disappeared from the movement, you know, and this time, I'm going to admit this times where I had to sit in my room, turn that light off, turn some music on and cry. Like, I had to cry, let it out because there was no, I feel, especially being Black, but also being a Black man, I feel like there wasn't that many avenues for me to to, to, to be able to open up or to even release and stuff. So then when I, like, so, like, music is my big thing. Music has always been my therapy, I feel. You know, whether I'm, you know, creating the music or whether I'm just sitting there listening to it, whether it's rock or whether it's hip-hop. Well, it's, I'm going to um, cut you off again. Music is not your therapy. <laughs> therapy is therapy. Music is therapeutic, right? We yeah, all have things that go. we do that is therapeutic. <laughs> and oftentimes people say, yeah, I shop. And that's my therapy. And I'm like, do I say something? Or do I be the obnoxious social worker that kind of wears all the elemental P's behind my name, right? Yeah. And I think that it's important for us to recognize that we have to do th more things that are therapeutic and to tap, literally tap out when it, you're, you're feeling that, but even before you feel that, right? Like I said, people exhaust themselves. That's why they disappear, right? Yeah. And I, if people are more willing to learn to utilize the word no, right? Not take on the brunt of other people's opinions or what they should be doing, right? Or chasing social media followers and those sort of things that at the end of the day mean nothing and is detrimental to our mental health. I think those are the important pieces that we should ultimately focus on, right? If you take care yeah. of ourselves little by little, the balloon never explodes, right? If you blow yeah. and release. And I think that that's the important piece that most people, especially advocates, tend not to do, right? It's unfortunate, especially as an advocate, and I even experienced that mental health, and I'm sure as someone in the movement in regards to police brutality and those sorts of stuff, you get it from all sides, right? You get it from a system that doesn't want you to speak up, right? That's full of white supremacists and racists. Um, and then you also get it from your people who thinks that you're not doing enough when they're not doing anything at all, right? And I think yeah. that becomes even more stressful. It's like, no matter what you do, it's never enough. Or no matter how you move, you can't satisfy anyone. And I think that's why it's important to one, to go to therapy. And even if you don't necessarily have a mental illness, so you can get a better hold of who you are in yourself. And I think that as you described, like I, we felt like kids, right? Getting yeah. back to that child who was a little bit more carefree, even though all children, as we can see, are not living carefree existences, but yeah. they're, but that childlike thing that ultimately brings you joy. It's almost like we forget that in adulthood and it's important to connect back to the things that make you smile and not just the things that you feel you need to do in order to maintain an image, right? Um, yeah. And as we kind of poke holes in our own egos, we realize there's a lot we can do to ultimately take care of ourselves and that we're important and it's, it's necessary for us to maintain that.
no, definitely, definitely. I, I truly agree. Um, but then again, who am I to say I agree? You know, you're the expert. <laughs> <in this. laughs> no, and that's a mistake that people make, right? People often look at it as mental health expert and then me. And I, I want people to remove that idea, right? Because you're an expert, right, of your own mental health and your own, and, and those sort of things too. And also mental health in general in regards to advocacy and holding these type of platforms, right? So people yeah. can be educated, but also to normalize this type of conversation that isn't typically had in our community and something that we weren't having, well, we didn't have when we grew, grew up, but also to making sure, and I think that oftentimes people talk about mental health in the grand scheme of young people and then people who are working, but people mm. who don't necessarily focus, focus on the other piece, which is geriatric population who are experiencing high rates of suicide more than ever um, yeah. and extreme um, mental illness as a result of social isolation, right? A lot of their places are still shut down, right? They're not able to go to libraries. They're not able to go to certain centers and things that were originally open. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking to a friend, like there was someone who she used to work um, volunteer at a food pantry and they had to like leave it outside. So people aren't really, they have to take their food and go. They're not allowed to congregate. So there's a lot of people that are affected in various different spaces and in different times in our lives. And having these conversations are necessary amongst two experts. <laughs> no, definitely, definitely. Um, so why do you believe many people do not seek help for their mental health issues? I think it's twofold, right? Um, the truth of the matter is, some people are unaware of what some of the signs and symptoms of mental illness look like, right? Mm. Oftentimes people conflate, especially in our community, like anxiety with just worry, right? Oh, I have worry. Mm. I worry a lot. And they, they chuck it up to a personality rather than to the real issue, which is oh, that needs treatment and by either through medication or, and, and also through therapy, usually both are better Guilty together. Discharge. <laughs> right and then the other piece of it is the dial right um i don't have an issue guilty as charge again <laughs> and i think that that's the biggest thing right when people don't necessarily realize or want to believe they have an issue they ultimately don't seek the treatment that they need and i also think that one of the biggest pieces of like not seeking the treatment that they need kind of really boils down to the idea of what we're kind of taught right we were always taught to suck it up, to bear it and grin it, and ultimately get through it. As Black people in society, we were never awarded the opportunity to say mental health was for us, right? Financially, for most people, they couldn't afford it, right? And even today, that's also another financial, therapy is a financial burden for most people. A lot of insurances yeah. don't have the mental health parity that's needed, even though law says that they're supposed to offer it, it doesn't necessarily translate into practice. And a lot of people yeah. are paying out of pocket and can't afford $150. One person told me last night they were paying $250 an hour weekly. A lot of these are people who are like, yes, I work a high paying job. I have student loans. I have other stuff. But what about yeah. other individuals who don't have those high wage jobs that yeah. will never be able to kind of tap into those systems because people aren't really taking insurance, right? There's a yeah. shortage of mental health professionals um, in addition to the lack of resources, right? So you can talk about the two double-edged swords and I always say they're twofold, meaning that the two A's in regards to awareness is one, but also access. So I can't, it's not necessarily an individual's fault for not seeking mental health treatment. Oftentimes the access to treatment, there's significant barriers, right? 
as I mentioned, financial barriers, also mental health literacy, which is the knowledge and skills to be able to even recognize you have an issue, um, but also barriers in regards to cultural competence and care, right? I've started and I've been to therapy multiple times in my life. I'm also very conscious of getting therapy before there's an issue. Like I can tell, okay, my grandmother's sick. So I know I'm going to have to deal with the bereavement. So I was able to do that, but not everyone has the education or the background to say, oh yeah, I need to deal with this. Right. In our communities, there's different like death rituals and different ways that other people cope with stuff. And most people think that's enough, but oftentimes certain people need to be able to process it a little bit more than others. And that's okay. And seeking mental health treatment is definitely a good thing, right? Rather than the bad, the thing that we've always kind of had as the boogeyman in our community. Yeah, because because and, and and it's and uh, you know it's really brought up bereavement and you know and and coping and um processing because I remember my grandma. I came back to New York in 2010. You know, after the Marine Corps, I went moved around state to state, you know, country to country, trying to find myself, trying to find where I felt like I belonged. And I ended up back in New York. So I guess I belong in New York. Um, <laughs> you know, but I remember I came back. I literally, the week that I came back, um, I gave my grandmother on my mother's side, you know, her last meal. And she ended up passing away. And like literally, like the like later on that day, I seen her, she she passed away. Um, and what's so crazy is. I still have not grieved since 2010 to now. So what's this? 12 years. I still have not grieved for her because I felt like I had to be there for others, you know, to make sure that I still strong for others. Cause that's, that's what we're taught, you know, be strong for, you know, and matter of fact, it doesn't even matter if you're a man, even women, a lot of women are taught to stand strong, you know, and, 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 to, and to hold, you know, hold your ground. And, and then it's like, well, Our women are the only women taught that though, right? Every other woman is allowed to be delicate and pink and soft while yeah. our women are taught to be strong, right? Pillars of yeah. the community and to carry everything, right? Um, yeah, as black, yeah, black are women literally are taught to be the, the, that warrior princess. And it's like, you know, you want to be fragile. You know, like I remember the first, like, first time I ever cried in front of people. I remember somebody was telling me, yeah, like, what's wrong with you, man? Like, you know, like, well, why, why, you know, why are you acting that way? You know, it's something, you know, something wrong. I'm like, yeah, something wrong. The issue that's making me cry, you know. But I didn't, I didn't learn to open up about the issue and stuff, which, which was a blockade. But then, what I realized is that people didn't expect me to show emotion. You know, they expected me to be a stone cold person, and it's like, what? Like it, I think it that hurts. not only that they're expected to be a stone cold person, the problem isn't that the problem is people in our society in general, right? Not only our community, but I could talk about American culture. We have an issue of vulnerability, right? We make fun of it, we laugh, we joke, right? Only until someone it, someone dies by suicide or a major event happens do we take it seriously, right? Yeah. Um People watch like the Kanye saga, right? And they're like, yeah. they've had a million jokes. However, if anything ever happened to Kanye West, they would pretend that they cared, right? Yeah. <laughs> and oftentimes, most people don't necessarily care. Um, but it's not even that they don't care, it's, you, it's they don't know how to care. 
because we're mm-hmm. taught to be productive and to just move along and do what you need to do. You don't have time. And the truth of the matter is most people don't have time to deal with mental illness, right? Those things yeah. typically happen in a nine to five structure. Now with telehealth, there's a lot more evening and weekend availability, but even that is very limited, right? Not enough providers or time slots for individuals to make up for the exacerbation and the boom in mental health necessity that has happened even with the you see like a lot of these intergenerational issues where you have the parents with mental illness and the children ultimately being ultimately being affected in those type of way or or vice versa where the children have mental illness and the caretaker doesn't know how to necessarily approach it and i think mm-hmm. that's why it's important to recognize what and learn some of the signs and symptoms All right, there you go. All right. You know, that's, you know, what everything you said is it's definitely something about, it, and it's actually the truth. You know, what you like, even when you talk about accessibility and outreach, what, what, what came to mind when you said that was um, Thrive, NYC, you know, and we all know um, came about in New York. Um, I'm going to put it out there, you know, I sat with, with, the, with the, who was the mayor at the time, Bill de Blasio, and his wife, Shirley McRae. And I, you know, I'm, a, I'm kind of a blunt person when it comes to politicians. I remember sit, sitting at the table with Gracie Mission, and I'm like, uh, you putting ads on buses and trains? That's not helping us. You know, where's our outreach workers? Where's the access to the care? You know, who's calling to make sure that everything's all right? What's the hotline or, or, or the chat line to make sure everything's all right? You know, who's going to talk to the students? Who's, say, who's saying, hey, let's do wraparound services, you know, since the child is having issues, you know, let's make, let's make sure we provide um, wraparound, um, wraparound services to where it includes the home. Because the parent, you know, or the other siblings may need the help with that. And I look at this and I'm like, when it comes to access, much of it is due to the lack of leadership. Or the, or the you or the, are trying to get me in trouble tonight. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I no, I, I'm just, I'm just ah! doing my talk. You ain't got to say nothing. Give New York City free ways to fix their mental health issues. They can um, <laughs> reach out to me for consulting. Um, but I, I can't even give the percentage of how much I agree with everything that you're saying. Um, I actually am a producer on a mental health documentary. Um, that we've been recording some of the sit-down interviews pre-pandemic. I've been kind of slowed down during the pandemic. However, we're revamping it uh, and including some of like these type of talks and these type of conversations as a part of it. And one of the things that I, one of the things that I thought was great about Thrive, so let's start there. I'll start with the the nice thing, right? Was (laughs) the mental health first aid trainings, right? Which I have to say, I was, I got certified. I got my nice blue certificate. Mental health first aid was amazing because (laughs) individuals were able to recognize uh, or learn how to recognize the signs of the two most prominent mental illnesses, which is anxiety and depression. Those things can ultimately change the way that people connect to services. The problem is only people who are connected to community organizations and to mental health services were really already going to take it, right? Um, yes. or someone who had the information and the resources are bringing it back. 
my issue with Thrive and the way it was, was that even the, their events were all mental health professionals that I would always see. So the events would sell out. And what would happen is it's just us who already has knowledge and the skills in order to treat mental illness that are sitting and hearing and being a part of the dialogue and conversation, no community. right? So there was no real true metrics of, of success because you can't really quantify awareness, right? Um, you can quantify help seeking intentions. You can, if you're paying attention and you're looking for those sort of stuff, I'm actually giving away my secret sauce, which I shouldn't, but like, hey, don't, 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 it literally is a boil, it boils down <laughs> to what you can quantify, what's measurable and in regards to what's success, right? And yeah. putting something on the billboards, if I don't know what Thrive is and I see call this number, Thrive had numbers for people to call and we're supposed to connect people to care. The problem was even social workers and psychologists and um, licensed practitioners, counselors, and all of the other mental health professionals that I work alongside, they weren't unfamiliar. They're like, how do you have this information? They used to call me the plug. They're like, where did you get this information from and why don't we know it, right? Mm. So <clears throat> New York City is special in the sense that that money that was thrown at Thrive was extensive. So it's one of the first times that a city did not have to technically worry about the financial resources to have wraparound services. The problem yeah. was it didn't necessarily exist. And as yeah. soon as the pandemic happened, all mental health first aid, which was needed more then than ever, was taken away, right? Yeah, and I true. think that when we talk about resources, oftentimes people say, well, there's not enough resources. That's true. But Thrive is an example that there was enough resources it often doesn't get to the people who are most vulnerable and need it the most. And it's one of the reasons why as tired as I am, I'm like, yeah, I'll meet with you at eight o'clock and have this type of conversation is because oftentimes it trickles from one person to another in regards to, yeah, maybe you could, you, you should consider this, right? Maybe yeah. you should talk to a therapist, right? I often hear that in, in my practice that it's not the person who thinks that they need a treatment, it's their friends or family members who say, yeah. you know what, I think that you need to talk to someone, but not everyone has someone like that. So it's important for community-based organizations and, and individuals and advocates in the community to continue to talk about their own mental health and mental wellness journeys, yes. right? It doesn't always have to be mental illness. It can be wellness just in general, right? And what those things look like. Um, I, I think it's important too to recognize that I probably even include and I should have included like what causes stuff in contemporary times also chronic illness, right? Causes mental illness in, in, in these times, right? The yeah. wait times are atrocious to get a regular to a primary care physician who is usually yep. the first frontline person to, to recognize or help people treat their mental illness um, in our community. Uh, and that's even if we have insurance enough to even see a primary care physician and we're not in a clinic and seeing someone frequently, right? So there's so many different things that interplay um, that affect our mental health. And we have to make sure that one, we know what it really is and not put the blame only on the individual, but systems yeah. that do not get resources to them also. Exactly, exactly. You know, and, and that's why I want, uh, why I hit on it first was because, you know, I, the concept made sense, you know, I just felt like, you know, same way, same way now we go outside, we see a COVID testing center on every corner. Oh, we see people walking around with with, with take home kits, like in, in in every major you know uh, area, 
you know, and I felt that should have been the same thing, you know. You know, maybe I'm just living in the days of when the preachers just stand on the soapbox and be on the corner. But, well, you know, Thrive actually had as one of their initiatives that yeah. I've never seen anywhere, and I didn't know where to find them, that they had an initiative. I forgot what, um, I don't want to mistake in name of, of African country, um, but they modeled it from like that community type of care and they were a book that village type of care and they were supposed to have these benches where people would be able to talk to a mental health professional if they walk in the street oh, and they wow. want guidance and they had a newspaper article about it published and everything no one knew what happened where or where these stuff were located right they had yeah. a lot of amazing comprehensive initiatives it was 54 i paid attention to it right 54 yeah. initiatives and you go on the website and it just lists all and you can't find individual initiative stuff right things like mm. um sisters drive and brothers drive that were aimed at black people in general that weren't necessarily consistent in regards to like doing the advocacy in regards to awareness that they said that they would do right and and when they did have events like i said it was full of my professional colleagues so if it's yeah. if it's not getting to the people who need it most or people or it's being filled up immediately by people who already enjoy talking about mental health, it's not ever going to get to the people who ultimately need it most. And those are the people that we ultimately need to empower so that they can go seek professional mental health treatment, right? So you talk about like black men not necessarily talking. People always say, well, black women talk about their emotions more, but to who? Right? They're not talking to mental health professionals. They're talking True. to their friends. And if your True. friend is also dealing with the same type of situations as you are and normalizes it, right? Oh, and that's the man. other thing. <laughs> Most people normalize a lot of mental illnesses as a way of life. It's who I am, right? Um, they attribute it to personality. Um, and it kind of goes into a little bit of the denial of what mental illness is, right? Um, they justify their behavior. They refuse to talk about it. Or they, they avoid thinking about it. And sometimes they say, well, you know what? I'll get help in the future. Or I'm going to get help, right? Or if yeah. they do seek, seek treatment, they'll seek therapy only, right? Because we have an aversion. And for real reason, a distrust, right? With mm -hmm. this current, like, industrial complex medical system, right? Um, <laughs> but also not necessary take necessary medications or those sort of things that are also important right mm. allowing their providers the full trust um is necessary sometimes uh and, and as you make a decision on what works for you with them right and i oftentimes think that it's important for us to seek providers who even though it's not necessary but black people prefer providers who look like them if you're yeah. talking about what is it like 3% in psychology is that I want to say like 73%, if it's not 73 or 63% of social workers are white and social workers are the predominant um, mental health providers, then where yeah. does that leave a community that has such high needs and very little individuals that are able to meet them where they are, right? People That's don't want to teach providers anymore about their culture right i want you to yeah. come in knowing what my culture is somewhat like but also recognizing that i'm not only my culture and the stereotypes that you place on my culture i'm an individual and my needs are special and individualized right we're taught for those sort of stuff but obviously people hold biases and racism that still kind of affects even social work right 
So it's important to ultimately get providers who are culturally competent, but also providers from the community. I think that one of the other fixes is to make sure that there's research, not for us, but by us. So the need for more Black researchers and mm-hmm. for us to actually go sit as research participants in those trials, right? Um, yes. and, and because oftentimes a lot of things that are done doesn't necessarily take into account Black issues because we don't sit in them, right? And I think yeah. that that's important too in order for us to really um, kind of address this issue. You need to address the increase in more Black providers and what does that mean? Funding then for individuals so they don't have to take on heavy debt to take care of a community, right? That mm-hmm. also means, especially in social work, these unpaid internships, that we make sure that people are be able to be paid for, for their services so that they can afford to get through school without taking on the debt again. And it also then means that we need the research, right? That will ultimately be tailored towards us and our cultural identities and our individual needs as a people. That's very true. So what do you, what do you feel are the signs of denial when it comes to mental health issues? I think I just spoke about them. Um, In regards to denial, oftentimes people just say, it's not me, right? Um, They allow the behavior to kind of persist, right? And allow the negative consequences to just kind of occur. Um, They chuck it up to it being their personality. Some oftentimes people try to, um, really they refuse to talk about it, right? But they also justify their behavior more than anything else, right? And oftentimes, the other big piece of denial is scapegoating, right? So they'll find somebody else to blame. So if, especially for a lot of people of color, right? Depression and anxiety may tend to look different, right? Oftentimes people don't think that it's irritability. So they Mm -hmm. think that it's me keeping it real. And if I'm snapping on someone, it's because they did something to upset me. Not realizing Mm -hmm. that if you allow, usually if someone can trigger you that way, that's that's a you problem, not a them problem. And mental illness is not a, a problem, right? If it's addressed and it's recognized and it's ultimately treated, right? Exactly. If you de-stress, right? If you have time to really take care of yourself and allow yourself proper rest, proper food, um, and a lifestyle that warrants mental wellness. Definitely, definitely. I was about to say, Dr. LaShawn Paul. LaShawn, it was <laughs> it was good to have you on today. Um you know, there's something that's definitely, you know, made me think about a lot of things, you know, uh, you know, brought back some memories, you know, of my start and my awareness when it came to mental health issues I was experiencing. And, you know, um, you know, hopefully those who are watching this, those who are listening to this either today or a later time, you know, you could actually realize that it is not bad that you have a mental health issue, but it can turn bad if you don't seek you know, some type of help for it, you know, and it's, it's, it's best for us to be preventative instead of you know, sitting there and allow it to continue. We got to stop this intergenerational, you know, um, um, cycle, you know, this revolving door, you know, where and tear happens, you know, and at the end of the day, we have to make sure that we don't just do it for ourselves, but for the future generations. That's something I always stress in everything, no matter what the topic is, whether, you know, it's um, in regards to um, violence, with regards to education, so like that, but definitely, definitely with mental health, because even with me being a father, you know, I have to let my children know it's all right to cry. It's all right to feel this way. You know, but talk to me. You know, I may not be the, you know, the, of the utmost human knowledgeable person, 
but what I know I can probably help with, or, you know, or even seek, you know, seek access to, you know, somebody who can help along the way. You know, even as adults, I feel we also have the stubbornness within us to feel that we don't need help. We can get through it. You know, I myself having the same way. I only have some in, in some aspects like that, but realizing that it is all right to be vulnerable. You know, it is it is all right to know it. And 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 some people may like hear this next line and be like, "What?" You know, it's all right to say that you're not okay. It is all right. You know. We have to stop hiding behind this veil. You know, it doesn't matter who tries to down us or who doesn't, you know, who, who acts like they don't care. Let them be where they be. That's why I categorize people, you know, to be honest. You know, because I'm like, okay, this is a person that really don't give a shit about me. <laughs> this is the person that I know is going to be there for me, you know, but on, but on a conditional basis. And this, these are the people who are going to be there for me unconditionally. And a lot of times that may lead you to one, to two, to three, to four people, but you know what? Hold them tight, you know, because we have to we have to build a sense of community and it doesn't matter how large or how small it starts, you know, I feel. And I, and I feel that building a sense of community will also help us to have better conversations, to be more open, you know, to be more vulnerable, but also to be able to teach each other you know, and to, and to exchange what we know, exchange who we are, you know, but like I said, you know, um, it was definitely an honor having you on. Thank you. You know, um, for those out there who want to follow, um, Dr. LaShawn Paul, um, please put your, um, please, um, you know, list your social media. Um, not, you can put it in the chat, but you can also speak it out as well too verbalize it um and also your website and how they can get a hold of you okay so, so um people can get a hold of me through info at socialrigdiva.com my email address um and i am on instagram at at social diva and at, on twitter at the swdiva so you can find me there um i just want to add one quick thing that mm. mental health is health, right? And it's important for all of us to recognize that all of us have mental health and it's not necessarily something that you have to wait for an illness and that we have to empower ourselves um, ultimately. And that's enough, right? By empowering ourselves, we ultimately mirror to other people what we expect and how they should take care of themselves. Oftentimes people just need to see one person doing that and that yes. taking care of yourself is community advocacy. Um, so thank you so much for having me on and have a great night. Same to you. Y'all, thank y'all all for tuning in to Real Talk with Anthony B. We got more topics going out there. We're going to cause that good trouble, you know, in the streets, online, on the podcast and so forth like that. We're going to come with the hot topics. People put, put people in the hot seat. You know, we're going to talk about things that people don't want to talk about. We're going to interview people that you may not even want to hear from. But you know what? We're going to hear them today you know, <laughs> you know but we also going to make sure that we bring accountability we bring you know inclusiveness and, and also talk the real talk out there you know for those of you out there who've been loving our memes you know our memes always have messages in there you know whether it be controversial whatever you know thank y'all for showing the support thank you for sharing us over like that you know y'all know where to find us make sure you stay tuned uh, for the audio of this on the podcast you can always look back on the page um facebook.com real talk with anthony b on um what was it on Twitter? You know, it's Real Talk Anthony B. On Instagram, it's Real Talk with Anthony B. On TikTok, it's Real Talk with Anthony B. It's Real Talk with Anthony B. Every day, all day. See y'all. Appreciate y'all. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.